Veterans Radio Hour with co-host Ranger Doug. No one left behind. Listen each week as General Grange and his guests address issues faced by veterans throughout their lives. your co-host, Ranger Doug. Welcome to the Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 10th program in a series that we began on 11 November 2021. Tonight's podcast, we're going to revisit the case of Master Sergeant Retired Dave Smith, who was with us during our last podcast, describing his story from Afghanistan to return to the United States. General Grange has other commitments tonight. He will not be with us, so I will serve as the host, Ranger Doug. And with me tonight, I have Rick Lamb, who's been with us before, an extreme special operations forces professional, number of different units. He'll give his background in a moment. Myself, Ranger Doug, I don't need an introduction. Steve Delellis, a medical professional. Kevin Sweeney, a former medevac pilot. And Dave Smith himself who's the subject of, of our show, and we're very glad he would share his story with us. So I would like to introduce Rick Lamb, who will tell you a bit about himself. Go ahead, Rick. Hey, thanks, Ranger Doug. Any returning podcasters, I'm a uh, retired command sergeant, Major Rick Lamb. I served in uh, two of the three Ranger battalions for the five special forces groups. I toured about uh, 49 countries across five continents and six geographic combatant commands and uh, was blessed to be able to participate in uh, just about every special operation from Operation Eagle Claw, which was the Iranian hostage rescue mission, up through uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2003. Uh, then I was uh, I went to U.S. SOCOM. I cross-trained as a Defense Intelligence Agency analyst and spent another 12 years at uh, U.S. SOCOM working missions, both CONUS and OCONUS, uh, with the interagency and our international partners. So uh, I had a great run. I was uh, I was blessed to do it. It's, it's always good if you have a strong back and a weak mind. But uh, honored to be here. Thank you, Rick. I'd like to introduce Steve Delellis. Steve? Thanks, Ranger Doug. Uh, good evening, everybody. My name is Steve Delellis. Uh, I retired after 37 years in uniform. I spent almost all of that time in the special operations community. I was fortunate enough to have served at every rank between private and colonel. I did an entire enlisted career in the special operations community between the 1st Ranger Battalion and the Army Special Missions Unit before going back to school. I was commissioned in 2000 as an Army physician assistant and spent another 19 years uh, as a commissioned officer back in all the same units I served in as an enlisted guy in an NCO. I had the privilege of uh, taking care of and treating uh, former teammates from my enlisted time uh, on the battlefield as a healthcare provider. I had the privilege of serving in uh, uh, several conflicts to include Just Cause in Panama, Operation Gothic Serpent in Mogadishu, Somalia. Uh, I was in the first helicopter, Super 6-1, that was shot down in Mogadishu. I uh, had the privilege of uh, bumping into uh, uh, Rick Lamb there in Mogadishu on the battlefield uh, as part of that operation. I served in Haiti 
in the Balkans. I did 12 rotations in Iraq and Afghanistan as a healthcare provider, again, with the Army Special Missions Unit. Uh, it's a privilege to be here tonight. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Steve. And now I would like to introduce Kevin, who is a former medevac pilot. So, Kevin, introduce yourself. Well, thanks, Ranger Doug. My name's Kevin Sweeney. I am a medevac driver with 26 years in the Army Medical Department. I uh, had a chance, uh, the unique opportunity to fly both the UH-1 and the UH-60. I think I had 1,200 hours in the Huey and 1,000 in the Blackhawk. Uh, served in a number of different medevac units, served in operational medicine assignments, um, had a chance to medevac lots of soldiers off the battlefield. And uh, when I left the Army, I went back to work and some contracting for the Department of the Army and then later on worked at the USASAC headquarters as a Department of the Army civilian in the Aviation Directorate. Uh, I left uh, the Aviation Directorate after four years and went to 1st Special Forces Command as the Deputy Inspector General there. Um, I'm happy and honored to be included in this group and looking forward to hearing the rest of the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. It's great to have you with us, and we certainly needed someone with your specialty. It's key that Dave described his medevac experience twice to us last time. Only a, a pilot could actually be able to describe it from the other side, so we would appreciate having you with us tonight. Now I'd like to introduce Master Sergeant Retired Dave Smith. Dave, go ahead. Thanks, Ranger Doug, and, and again, it's an honor and a privilege to, to be included here on this on this podcast. Um, for those of you that are turning, tuning in again, uh, my name is Dave Smith, retired uh, Master Sergeant out of 3rd Special Forces Group. Um, I was injured twice, uh, both IEDs. The first one was a mounted IED in 2006, and the second one was a dismounted IED in Sangin District, Helmand Province, Afghanistan. Um, the, the second IED, the dismounted IED, was the one that sort of uh, took me out of the fight um, and ended up spending a few years at, at Walter Reed, consequently, after that. But um, I'm really proud of my service, and I'm you know, really proud of everything that I did and everything that we did. I'd happily go over and do it again and, and share my story in any way that might be beneficial to anybody else. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Well, we'd like to stay with you, though, to take us through your, your story as far as you'd like to go back to cover and bring us to the present. In other words, the present meaning, in other words, you're on the medevac, you're moving through the healthcare system, and somewhere you encounter a situation that you'd like to describe. So why don't you uh, drop back and take some time to tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, it, thanks, Ranger Doug. If I can, I'd like to start with, uh, again, the, the injury on August 16, 2010 in Helmand Province. Um, for those of you that, that are just tuning in, I, uh, one of my teammates had actually stepped on an IED on our firebase. We had caught some militants in placing IEDs and gone up and, and cleared the area, uh, found and, and blew in place two other suspected IEDs, and, and there was a third one that neither a dog team nor a metal detector nor anybody else found. Um, but in the process, one of my teammates stepped on it. And uh, he was severely injured, lost one leg above the knee and the other leg uh, very high above the knee, almost at his hip. Um, I was injured uh, with, with shrapnel injuries to my face and to my eyes, uh, an above-the-elbow amputation on my left arm, 
of amputation of my index finger on my right hand and significant trauma damage to my right hand and just, you know, general general other stuff from, from my eyes down to my ankles. Uh, I was cognizant and aware throughout the entire thing. Um, I you can remember uh, listening to the CCT guy, you know, calling in for medevac, uh, calling in for close air support because the uh, – the, the militants had opened up with their ambush as soon as they heard us uh, ha- having set on the, the IED. Um, I remember the, the, the medevac bird coming in. It was a bit of a challenge getting it to come in because they, they, they were requesting that we clear the LZ of mines, which is completely understandable. Um, that was another TTP that the, the militants like to use in Afghanistan. Was They, they, they kind of knew the sequence of events, how things would go whenever a, a U.S. service member or coalition member was injured. So they, they like to try to have follow-on or, or aftershock uh, IEDs. So we did that, and it was actually a uh, British medevac that came in and picked up uh, my teammate and myself. Um, they loaded they loaded him up first, uh, my teammate Mark, because he was more severely injured than I was. And then they picked me up. I was, I was aware that they picked me up and put me on the bird. And the last conscious memory that I had up until I was at Walter Reed was hearing the metal of the stretcher hit the metal of the floor in the helicopter. And, and they obviously must have hit me something immediately as soon as they got me on the bird, the the, the the air flight crew, that is, because uh, I, I didn't have a conscious memory again until about two weeks, well, about two, two and a half weeks later when I was at Walter Reed. Uh, during that time, I had traveled from uh, point of injury, like I said, was in Sangin District in Helmand Province, to Camp Bastion, to Bagram Air Base, to Lonstool, and then on to Walter Reed. Uh, so when I arrived at Walter Reed, it was a relatively fast process getting from the point of injury to Walter Reed. I, like I said, I was injured on the 16th. I think I arrived at Walter Reed on the 21st. So considering the distance traveled and everything that that, that goes into that, it's, it's quite quick. Um, but again, I didn't have that that conscious memory until you know a week and a half after I had been at Walter Reed. They had me in an induced coma to try to uh, facilitate some other things. I had injuries to my eyes. I had injuries. I had uh, uh, inhaled some of the, the, I don't know, not dust, but some of the, the carcinogens and whatnot that were in the air. So I had uh, injuries to my lungs, even though I'd been wearing body armor, and a lot of the other things. And my wife, I, 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 was, I arrived at the old Walter Reed, uh, which was the original Walter Reed, I arrived there, and my wife said when she first, when I first came in, she didn't even recognize me because they brought my teammate in first, and, and you know, all the doctors had sort of been preparing her, you know, for, for when she saw me, that it might be, you know, somewhat difficult. So they brought Mark in first, and she could see him. And at the, the old Walter Reed, for anybody that's been there, where they bring in the injured, um, it's right through the main entrance of the hospital, and and where the the family and people like that stand, it's a, it's a bit of a balcony that overlooks the main entryway, and they 
as they bring in patients, whether they bring them in one or two at a time or, or five or six or ten at a time, the family is able to see but, you know, not be close enough to interfere. So my wife saw Mark come through, and she was telling me after the fact that, okay, I can handle this. And then I came in, and she didn't even recognize me. And part of the problem with that was that due to the uh, injuries, the shrapnel injuries to my eyes, my eyes were completely swollen, and my eyeballs were completely swollen. And it was impossible to close my eyes. And it was really um, tough for her to, to, to see and to, to recognize that particularly for my kids, too, because my kids were there as well. But um, they brought me in, and I was on a fairly high dose of ketamine. As the swelling went down in my eyes, they had sewn my eyelids closed, sewn my eyes closed with a couple stitches in my eyelids to, to allow the you know my eyes to heal a little bit. And so as I was coming out of the induced coma and starting to be aware again, I was also under under ketamine for, for the pain and for everything else, and I was on a fairly high dose. And I don't know what anybody else's experience has been on ketamine, but for me, it was a living nightmare. It was just one nightmarish dream after another. And so for me, it was really hard to discern what was reality and what was not because I was coming out of an induced coma. I was on a high dose of ketamine, and my eyes were 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 sewn closed, so I wasn't able to see. So distinguishing what was real and what wasn't was very was very difficult for me at first. Um, I initially, you know, I had I had uh, a couple of teammates that were there with uh, with myself and Mark. We were our rooms were right next to one another, and uh, had a couple teammates that came up there to to keep an eye on both of us and to be with Mark's wife and his daughter and to be with my wife and, and my two children. And the whole time they kept telling me, you know, Dave, you're at Walter Reed. You and Mark were injured in an ID. Mark's okay. These are his injuries. These are your injuries. And it, they they just had to keep saying it because of the traumatic brain injury that I had. It, it didn't quite sink in. And also, to some extent, I'm sure, because of the ketamine. So um, I'll just wrap up this quick, you know, entrance into – my my stay at Walter Reed, it, it was very difficult for me. And the only thing I, I knew about Washington, D.C., I hadn't been to D.C. or Walter Reed before, was that Washington, D.C. was on the coast. But in my mind, in my in my state of mind, and like I said, under under the, the strong narcotics that I was under, I pictured Washington, D.C. as like this dark city on a cliff at night with a storm. And and it wasn't at all like what Washington D.C. is. It was almost um, nightmarishly cartoonish, if that makes any sense. And uh, it, it was just it, my bed. I, when I finally realized, okay, I'm at Walter Reed. The first question I asked, I said, okay, but why am I in a cave? Because I felt like I was not in a hospital room. If you've ever seen uh, the movie The Count of Monte Cristo. When he tunnels over to the priest's cell for the first time, and the priest kind of has that uh, bed that's that's worked into the rock there, that's what I thought I was on. That's that's exactly what I thought I was in. And I went through all kinds of episodes where I thought I was uh, in a in a new Sears school that was being developed at Fort Bragg, and I had all kinds of other things. But 
Uh, I got through it, and I uh, was an inpatient for about four months. And then after that, I started my outpatient uh, work. And I'll get on to that in just a few minutes. Thank you. That's great, Dave. Thank you very much. We're going to pause for a commercial now. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN, bringing you shows like Wounded But Not Broken, Roll Call, and Veterans Radio Hour. We'll be right back. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life, like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new, and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's Ranger Doug. Well, that was great. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to our show. We're now tonight in this program still on the subject of Our Wounded. This is part two. We had part one last week. Our guest tonight, who is the injured NCO, is Dave Smith. He's going to talk a little bit more about his situation, and our other guests are going to share in the discussion. Dave did you at any time have a perception of, of where you were as you went through the system, or did you suddenly wake up someplace and realize you'd finally arrived at Walter Reed? Thanks, Ranger Doug. No, that, that was exactly the case for me. I had, I had no, no conscious memory once, once my, my stretcher hit the metal of the aircraft, the metal inside of the aircraft. I had no conscious memory of, ba- of ever being at Bastion, of ever being at Bagram, um, some of my teammates had vis- visited me while I was at Bagram. Um, my battalion and group commander had both visited me while I was at Bagram. Apparently, I had no knowledge of it, uh, nor did I have any conscious memory of lawn school. And, and like I said, my first my first conscious memory of from from the the point of injury in Afghanistan. The next conscious memory that I had was after I'd been at Walter Reed for about two weeks. And, and as I said, it, it took me a little bit of time to even wrap my head around that. It wasn't like just saying, hey, you're, you know, you were injured, you're at Walter Reed, everything's okay. I mean, it literally was a couple of days of reminding me 
because I would always ask where I was at and what had happened. So it was a very uh, confusing and uh, somewhat delirious time for me to try to figure that out. Thanks, Dave. Thank you very much. Kevin, how about uh, a little bit on Medivac itself? I mean, you're very experienced at that. You've done it under fire. Describe a little bit, if you will, a perspective you might have drawn from what he described. Well, I know uh, Dave was injured. The point of injury was his vehicle, obviously, there on, a, on the battlefield. And he said he was medevaced by a British air ambulance. And uh, I was basically wondering, um, Dave, if you can recall, uh, I know, obviously, your your team medic was somewhere close and uh, prepped you. I mean, can you remember once the crew, British Air Ambulance, arrived, did uh, did you already have a line in? Were you uh, on a long backboard before they loaded you? How did that sequence go, if you can recall? So I, I was conscious during my uh, – when I was injured, uh, when Mark and I were both injured, I was conscious throughout the whole – that whole thing. And uh, as I had stated in my uh, – in the last podcast, I didn't really understand how how severely injured I was. Um, I could hear Mark, and I could tell that that he was you know se- severely injured. I could hear our team medic. We had one uh, team medic at the time, and he was working on Mark because Mark was the most seriously injured, and had a few other teammates that were working on me. When I realized that I had my injuries must be more severe than I thought that they were, uh, was when I felt them put tourniquets on all four limbs. Um, also, when I when I heard the CCT our CCT operator uh, trying to call medevac and trying to call CAS and do all these things, and uh, they were requesting the medevac was requesting to have the LZ cleared to make sure there are no other IDs. And and they were going back and forth on the radio. As I said before, I can remember when I, 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 I said out loud to our CCT operator, to the team, just clear the fucking LZ. And when I did that, it was like my, my mouth was kind of flapping. So I knew that I had uh, you know some sort of facial trauma as well. I didn't realize at the time that I had shrapnel injuries to my eyes, but in hindsight, I don't know if my eyes were open and I couldn't see or if my eyes were closed. I'm not sure which. I had been wearing my Oakleys when I was injured, but when the blast happened, but that didn't matter. I don't have any knowledge of uh, an IV being started, um, and I don't remember being put on a backboard. I think I was probably put on, uh, like, an Israeli litter or something like that. We did have litters on our team. Um, and, again, we, you know, we had we had 118 Delta that was he was kind of bouncing between Mark and I just to oversee the guys that were working on me, but his primary focus was on uh, was on Mark. The guys who were working on me, for the most part, from what I understand, I had a piece of wood uh, that had been part of the pressure plate um, sticking out of my left thigh, and uh, and the tourniquets on all four limbs. And come to find out later that I had a small uh, cut in my femoral. Fortunately, it hadn't been worse because you know the guys hadn't seen it, but. Um, I think the the tourniquet that they put on kind of helped helped you know, keep that at bay. But no, that was it. And then once they put, like I said, once they put me on the helicopter, that was it. I didn't have another conscious memory of anything, anything about the air crew or or the flight or nothing. And Dave, just to recap, how you were injured? You were you were injured by an IED that was made of homemade explosive HME, as we call it, 
and even the uh, shrapnel itself was non-standard. You had detectors and you had a dog. None of them had found that. And when your teammate tripped it, it not only injured him, it injured you. Is that a correct statement? That's absolutely correct, yeah. My first IED in 2006 had been uh, two Russian anti-tank mines because there was a lot of Russian ordnance left over when we went into Afghanistan. And that's a lot of what the uh, Taliban and the militants were using. By 2010, my second IED, they had largely gone through most of that ordinance, and they had almost exclusively transitioned over to homemade explosives, which consisted of um, large, you know, two, three, four, five-gallon uh, fuel jugs or water jugs. They were yellow plastic, and they would pack them full with fertilizer and, and, and have car parts in them. And often, most often they were pressure plate, but sometimes they were command uh, detonated. But pressure plate was the easiest, easiest thing to do. And, uh, and that was almost exclusively what they switched over by 2010. In the HME process that you understood at the time, was that training being supplied by anybody other than Afghans themselves? Was anyone in there working to train them as to how to make the bombs and do the things that they did? Because it sounds like, although not a complex bomb, it, it was sophisticated enough to avoid any of the detection mechanisms we had. Yeah, so it, it, there was a fair amount of, um, of cross-training is the right word, but, but sharing of knowledge that was going on between um, the Iraqi theater and, and Afghanistan. There were obviously a lot of third parties. There were third parties to both of those of those conflicts that were working and sharing TTPs and knowledge as far as what worked and what didn't. And, um, while there are two different fights, Iraq was, was largely, not exclusively, an urban scenario, and Afghanistan was largely, but not exclusively, a rural scenario. A lot of the TTPs were made the same because Af uh, American soldiers, by and large, um, their TTPs are very similar, how they react to contact, how they react to indirect contact, how they react to IEDs, medevac procedures, things like that. Roughly the time period that it takes for CAS to get on station, all those kinds of things, you know, the enemy is a thinking enemy. And so when it comes to IEDs and things like that, um, there were a lot of TTPs that we saw in Afghanistan that, that came from Iraq. Um, and, and so, and, you know, again, I, I don't know if we can get into, you know, who was training them on how to do some of these HME, um, IEDs and things of that nature. But I will say that, you know, the Afghans have been fighting for, for centuries, for absolutely centuries. And it's just part of their lifestyle. So it's completely understandable that they were going to come up with an unconventional way to, to, to make up for the deficit in technology that, that they had compared to us. And it makes perfect sense that they would do that. Thank you. Those are great comments, Dave. And, and yeah, it, at some point in the future, we may explore who's out there, but that might uh, lead us down another trail. We want to stick with you and, and what you experienced, what you knew, and what the audience uh, needs to hear, and also what our guests can comment on. You mentioned two abbreviations. We already covered one, HME. And the other one was IED, of course. That's improvised explosive device. Homemade explosive, improvised explosive device. So, Steve Dolellis, as a medical professional, can you shed any light on the discussion we've had so far? Please, sir. 
Yeah, thanks, guys. Um, so, um, Dave, I'd, I'd like to make a couple comments. So, uh, having been a casualty on the battlefield in Mogadishu after our aircraft was shot down, and then uh, having the opportunity to care for casualties on the battlefield for nearly 20 years after that, uh, it amazes me um, how powerful the memories can be from your experience, and they certainly are with mine. I'm impressed by how um, how uh, implicitly you talked about the sound of metal on metal when your litter was placed on the floor of the of the the medevac helicopter as you were being evacuated. And I've heard uh, similar comments from uh, casualties from other conflicts, um, and certainly in, in Iraq and Afghanistan that that uh, that some of those those memories from specific senses either a sight or a smell or a sound, um, really stuck with them. And what, what, what would really be considered, um, you know, an insignificant part of the tale is really what sticks out in your mind as an impressive part of the event, the sound of the metal of the litter hitting, hitting the floor of, of the aircraft. Uh, like you, I, uh, after we crashed in Somalia, I, uh, I remained in the fight. Uh, there were only two of us conscious in our helicopter that could fight um, after we crashed until the search and rescue team got there, uh, of which Rick was part. Uh, Rick, thanks. G good to reconnect with you uh, many years later. Um, and then uh, I, I didn't even realize I was wounded until uh, until the next day when we all arrived at the Pakistani stadium, and uh, and I had passed out. I, I, I had broken my back. I would lost a lot of blood. I don't think anyone realized it. I certainly didn't realize it. I remember being loaded onto a UH-1 helicopter uh, and flown off the battlefield in a, in a Huey, thinking to myself, great, I just crashed with two of the most experienced special operations pilots in the inventory, and I'm being medevaced by probably a W-1 and a second lieutenant on a Vietnam-era helicopter. And I really don't remember anything else until uh, – until a, a day or two after we arrived at Lawnstool. So uh, I just want to comment on, on those, how powerful those memories can be, which, which in my opinion, uh, likely have some role in the recovery process, not the physical re recovery process, but the cognitive and the emotional and the mental uh, recovery process. It's important to remember those things and to hold on to those things because they're confounded by the other things that were very confusing to you, like the, the drug-induced memories you have of the cave or the, uh, uh, you know, some of the memories you've had uh, uh, back uh, in D.C. So uh, I just wanted to comment on those memories. Thanks. We're going to pause now for a commercial. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour. We'll be right back. And I need that fire just to know that I'm awake. Erase darkness till the break of day. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. 
like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again. 847-754-4667. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour. There's no place What is this thing that builds our dreams yet slips away from us? Okay. Great commercial. Thanks for listening. This is Ranger Doug. We're back on show number. 10, and this is part two of our Our Wounded programs. Our guest tonight, Dave Smith, Master Sergeant, 3rd Special Forces Group, retired, talking about his injuries in Afghanistan. We've got a team of people that we've introduced, and I'll pass over to Rick Lamb, Command Sergeant Major, retired, multi-special operations capable, Bull Simons Award recipient, a good friend of mine for many years. Rick, how about talking about things from an operator perspective, especially one key thing that Dave mentioned last week. He had ensured, since he was the team sergeant, that his team engaged in a number of different training repetitions that prepared them for what they would have happen. And, in fact, he made the comment, if I'm not mistaken, that that the actions of his teammates trained in medical care on the scene after an injury such as this probably saved lives. Rick, over to you. Hey, thanks, Ranger. And, uh, hey, Steve, and, uh, it, 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 it's great to, uh, run into you again. And, uh, again, I, you know, Dave, I, we, we met again last week, and it, it really is a, a testament to the, to the small community that we live in. I've served with both of you guys before, and, uh, and I'm, I'm great to see that you're surviving and that you're thriving, and, uh, it really is an honor to, to be back with you. you know, and, and, uh, Ranger, you, you hit on, uh, on the thing about training, and that's my that's my biggest fear. As you know, over over the years, uh, you know, if you go back to what Dave Range was saying in the last podcast, you know, with with Doc Donovan, Vietnam medic, and uh, yeah, he was the guy that uh, that showed us the B fifty two tips. That uh, you know, there was a place for everything. Everything is place. I mean, they they wore cravats around their neck, not to be Hollywood, but because you know people bleed a lot. You need cravats for pressure dressings. They they wore. They wore tourniquets for belts. They wore cravats for belts. I mean, every sling that you had on a weapon had a uh, had a dressing 
taped to it. You know, every ammo pouch that you carried had a, had a dressing in the top of it. It not only, you know, kept your magazines from rattling, but it was, you know, people bleed a lot. You know, they had IVs prepped and, and, and taped and tagged, you know, onto, onto their, onto their LCE. So uh, their load carrying equipment. And, and that was, that was pre-IFAC, you know, so we, we fast forward now, we've got the IFACs and, uh, you, you've got the, the advanced training and, uh, but, but again, those, those lessons were lost by the time we roll into 1980, right? But it was guys like Donovan that brought it back to the forefront. And, uh, so that's my biggest fear is that, you know, we lose these lessons and we keep relearning them. I can probably fill in some of the holes, I think, from, uh, from, uh, uh Dave's, uh, Medivac, uh, and also Steve's for that, for that part, uh, when I was wounded in Somalia, I was a head wound. A, uh, an RPG had creased the, the hood of our vehicle. It exploded about uh, 10 meters off to my left. I remember actually following it with my eyes. You know, Steve, you talk about the, the, the things that you do and the things that you remember. And so when the thing blew up, I remember my head snapping back, and then it goes forward, and I see this spurt of blood go down, and it hits the uh, the driving lights there in the uh, in the Humvees. And I remember swearing under my breath, God damn it, I just got killed. And uh, so everything goes to this white, pristine point of light, and uh, and then the sounds are gone. I don't know if uh, you experienced the same thing, but I, I was in bliss. You know, that pristine point of light, I mean, the prickly heat doesn't bother me anymore. The smells, you know, the pain from uh, from either, you know, either the, the helmet headband or the, or the damn uh, uh, you know, plate carriers. Uh, and then you know, I'm, I'm ready to go. And then all of a sudden I start thinking about my kids. And my wife and I'm like, cause I just literally had a son and, uh, the, the night that we deployed to Mogadishu. So, uh, I'm thinking about them and then all of a sudden, boom, power back up. The, uh, the lights come on and, uh, you know, come back on. It's, it's at, at night, but, uh, you know, I can see again the pain's back. The guys are hitting me in the back of the helmet because the driver just got in, uh, wounded the intersection prior. So they did a dead driver drill across the hood. I climbed across the transmission hump and now I'm driving. So uh, so then I get hit, and they're all saying, don't stop here, because you can hear the rounds smacking into the Humvee. So, and that's about 2,300 at night as we're trying to get to Steve at the crash site. The uh, So we fight again. I mean, it was a 16-hour gun battle, so I think we fight until about 6 a.m. when we finally all close on the Packy Stadium. By that time, it's like a it's like a bad drunk. I'm, I'm on my second wind. I mean, I I, I don't have any pain to, to really. I'm 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 ambulatory. There's a head wound. I was one of the first medevacs out on that on that old rackety Huey, and I get to the uh, the mash site, and there's 75 kids uh, that are wounded. 75 Rangers and uh, some kids from the 10th Mountain as well. And, I mean, the orderlies are going everywhere. I mean, the docs are, are everywhere. I mean, everybody's covered in blood, and so. It gets to the point where uh, I'm kind of in the way because I'm mean, there. Basically, kids that are that are flatlining that they've got to get into the operating suites. And if nobody's ever seen a uh, you know a mobile army surgical um, you know a, a hospital, a mash unit. I mean, for the listeners out there that remember the old mash from uh, you know from the Korean War, that series. I mean, it's, it's night and day. You know, the, now then. And uh, they've got uh, anything from, you know, from CT scans to, to, uh, to you know, uh, MRIs to, to X-rays to, to operating suites. I mean, they can, uh, yeah, they can save some lives if, if you can get them there. And uh, so that the mash, uh, I mean, it was the care I got there was was first rate. And uh, it, it was you know, from there they, they stabilize you at, at the mash. 
and then the nightingale where uh, you know, a, a big bird comes in and uh, you have a jet airliner that's got all the all the bells and whistles you know that can keep guys alive on oxygen and and, uh, and transport they will transport you because coming out of Africa there's nothing in Africa that's going to save your life the uh, but they they get you to launch school so Europe was the closest place and uh, we roll into launch school uh, in Germany and uh, again they were they were up. Um, I mean, everything from shaving kits to slippers to you name it, the units that are there at Launch Duel were taking care of the casualties that were coming in from Mogadishu. And, uh, you know, pizza parties, the whole nine yards, they were, they were, and, and, and the care. I mean, it's a, it's a big hospital. And uh, so everybody was stabilized there at, uh, at Launch Duel, then another nightingale comes in. Some of the guys that couldn't move uh, remain there, but a lot of the guys that could move uh, got on the nightingale flight again uh, that went from Germany. And it, it works the East Coast. So a lot of the guys were uh, went to Walter Reed. And I remember, uh, again, you know, I'm a, I was a head wound. The, the shrapnel had gone into uh, my left front lobe. It put the left front lobe, it had gone, uh, stopped between the left and the right front lobes, about even with the temple. But uh, it, when, when one one lobe of the brain goes down, the other the other one takes over and fires again. That was the lights that I was seeing, right? And uh, so... Other than that, I'm fine. And uh, so I, I go to get off at Launch Duel, and they, or not at Launch Duel, but uh, Walter Reed, and they say, nope, you're going down to Keesler. So I go down to Keesler uh, Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi, and meet a, uh, a doctor down there by the name of Miller. And Miller had uh, cut his teeth in Chicago at uh, you know, the, the, the slaughterhouse that is Chicago at Cook County Medical. And uh, that's where he had done all his work, and he was the premier frontal lobe trauma guy, and that's who actually did my uh, my craniotomy. They ended up uh, opening me up and, and cleaning out, uh, you know, debreeding some of the left front lobe, and uh, making sure there wasn't an infection, which there was an infection in there. I mean, the infection almost killed me. I spent about three months uh, on antibiotics there at uh, at Biloxi, uh, there at Keesler, until I was uh, you know, sent back to. to Third uh, Ranger Battalion, and uh, with a little bit of convalescent there, and then you know, finished my tour uh, at, at regiment. But uh, the, the whole system there was was set up, you know, from the the, the mass unit that's in country to, to launch duel, which was you know the regional facility, all the way down to uh, you know again working that East Coast there, dropping the guys at uh, at, at Walter Reed or as far south as uh, as Biloxi. And uh, you know, as far as the stuff that uh, that, that they have today, I, I think it's it's even. Uh, you know, I mean, Dave is, is is living proof of of how that system works. And you've got guys like Mike Schlitz that are out there. You know, I mean, burned almost beyond recognition, and, uh, and and those guys are surviving. I mean, the only wounds that you carry with you after that, other than you know, working around. You know, the loss of limbs and eyesight is uh, is the mental piece. And uh, Dave, my hats off for you uh, to you for for working your way through that, brother. That's that's all what I've got. That's great, Rick. Thanks so much. How about uh, Kevin? Anything to add to the things that you've heard so far? Well, first of all, Ranger Doug, it's just an honor to listen to these soldiers talk about their experiences. I've been out quite a while about 24 years now. But I and I know all you guys have uh, heard about and talked about the golden hour. And when I was a medevac driver, that was the thing that pushed our buttons 
when we lined up on final to whatever that objective is or was to pick up that casualty, our primary mission was to try to get that lad back to some kind of definitive care, whether it be a level two MASH, uh, a combat support hospital, an evac hospital, maybe at level three, even if they were in theater, and get that person looked at very closely and get him into surgery. As I uh, advanced through the ranks and moved through my career, just as I was getting out, you guys are probably familiar with this too, um, the, the development of the forward surgical teams, telemedicine, were, were very big. And uh, again, the primary mission for us was to get that person back to a fixed facility and get him into surgery as quickly as possible. The numbers spoke volumes. Kevin, that's a great perspective. Steve, how about you? You've obviously got kind of a multifaceted uh, understanding of these things, plus are probably pretty well aware of what's going on today regarding medevac, medical treatment, and so forth. Based on what uh, Dave and, and Kevin have discussed with us, also Rick, what do you think about the uh, future of, of medevac, future of medical procedures, especially as it concerns heading into not this uh, coin and stability, coin counterinsurgency and stability operations we've been involved in, but what about large-scale combat, too, if you could comment on that as well? Yeah, I think there's probably a dozen comments I could make here that uh, are all pertinent to the conversation, not the least of which uh, has to do with uh, uh, the comments about the golden hour and what we've learned about the golden hour and how to how to affect that. Um, you know, in in Iraq, uh, Secretary of Defense made the the decree that uh, that uh, every every wounded soldier, sailor, airman, or marine would be uh, underneath a surgeon's scalpel within, within 60 minutes and, and that really enforced, uh, or, or emphasized our appreciation of the golden hour. Yet what we learned was, um, that those 60 minutes, uh, that transpire in that golden hour between, uh, a soldier being wounded and, and under the, 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 capable care of a surgeon uh, is a very important span of time. Uh, and and we, we learn very rapidly that what is done for a casualty with literally within the first few minutes is as important as getting that soldier uh, or, or casualty to a surgeon uh, and, and enter the era of the platinum 10 minutes. Uh, and we kind of refocused um, skills training for uh, the, the frontline provider uh, and and kind of quit teaching soldiers to call for a medic when they were wounded uh, or when their buddies were wounded, but rather to uh, try to treat yourself, self-aid, try to treat your buddy if they were incapable of treating themselves, uh, so self-aid and buddy aid. And then if you were incapable uh, of, of dealing with the, the casualty or the casualty's problems, then you called for a medic. But really the medic was there to reinforce what the what self-aid was done and what buddy aid was performed for that casualty. And that became the real focus of uh, additional training about midway through uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom and, and really uh, served us well for the longer evac times in Afghanistan is that as that conflict dragged on. And uh, I think your point, um, Ranger Doug, about 
future fights is very important because I don't think ever again in the history of our nation will we enjoy the freedom of movement, the freedom of evacuation, the freedom of communications that we've had uh, for so many years, even decades in Iraq and Afghanistan. I think we're really going to have to focus hard on those platinum 10 minutes on self-aid, buddy aid, and what to do in those prolonged field care scenarios where evac may be delayed or impossible for several days, uh, and teaching not just the medics, but every warfighter on the battlefield how to deal with a casualty and how to sustain life uh, with minimal equipment and, and, uh, and maximum effort, um, because we're not going to have uh, the, the, the type of medevac coverage or the combat support hospital on every corner that we've had in Iraq and Afghanistan for many years to support the future fight. No, Steve, I, I totally agree. And in fact, uh, I had a conversation with uh, the commander of the Special Warfare Medical Group about technologies and other things that are going to be made available soon to advance bandaging uh, and other types of wound attention capabilities that essentially just stop the bleeding so that the person can live but he may lose a limb, yet, you know, he's, he's in a stasis situation. And then how do we medevac? Well, they're even talking about non-manned medevac aircraft that will be able to penetrate through hostile fire to recover a person. But, of course, if it's non-manned and non-crewed, there won't be anyone there to tend uh, the person who's in dire danger uh, even during the flight. So there are lots of things that are, that are going to be worked out, and as, as you and I discussed today on the phone, uh, we're heading to Fayetteville soon to, to describe some things that we've learned about treating wounds, and we'll see if some of those things are, are applicable. But that's that's fantastic. I want to pause now for a quick commercial, and then when we return, once again, uh, go to Rick Lamb and uh, talk about some things that lay in the future and how we can better prepare for this, and then we'll finish up with Dave Smith describing about how much longer he's got in his story and we'll figure out then uh, how to set up for our third program on this particular subject. So far, this whole discussion to me is just fascinating. I forget to take the mute button off, in fact. So let's pause for that commercial. Thank you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Looking for semi-drivers nationwide? GTS Transportation of Burr Ridge, Illinois is looking to hire a partner with experienced CDL holders in every state. If you are going to drive, why not drive for the best? Whether you are driving solo, as a team, or as an owner-operator, GTS is looking to add you to their rapidly growing company. Become part of one of the most respected, driver-friendly, and successful transportation companies in America, where drivers are treated as royalty. Contact us at gtscarrier.com. Again, gtscarrier.com. Or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. We would love to help you, which in turn helps everyone. GTS is an equal opportunity employer.
What's coming next is amazing. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's Ranger Doug. Well, welcome back, and we appreciate you joining us tonight on Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 10th program. We're still talking about our program, Our Wounded, Our Wounded, those people who fight for us and get wounded in the service of this great nation. This is program number two in that series, and our guest is Dave Smith, and we've got a number of other professionals with us. I'd like to offer some time to my friend Rick Lamb to talk about some things that he's heard and some things that he knows about the process of recovering wounded service people so that they can become happy in what they've done, move into productive lives, and we as service people and veterans help each other moving forward. Rick, over to you. Hey, thanks, Ranger Doug. Appreciate it. Yeah, and uh, I think we've come a long way, we being you know, the, the military. Uh, like SOCOM uh, under McRaven uh, set up the uh, preservation of the force and families. And, and uh, so it's, it's looking at the soldiers, looking at his families. It's, uh, but, but it's also, you know, he, he, he put, uh, you know, SOCOM put money against it. So now every 06 level command has got, um, has got this, this, you've got the POTA funds, preservation of the force and families. And, uh, so like the Rangers, for example, they have RAWS, the Ranger Athlete Warrior Program. And, uh, and, and what it does is when, uh, when, when a ranger is, is injured, uh, whether it be combat or, or, or just on a parachute accident, I mean, he goes down to the, uh, it, it's, it's not a fitness center, but it, it's kind of a rehab center. And, uh, but it's got everything that, uh, and everything from, a, from, a, from a psychiatric guy to a dietitian to a, uh, a personal trainer to, uh, to a therapist. And, uh, so it's not like the old days when we were in where, uh, you know, Lamb, Twist his ankle on a jump, and, and my squad leader's looking at me four days later, going, "Hey, you sissy, get back and you know, get back under the ruck." And uh, I mean, they, they actually detail them to this human performance center, and uh, and they've cut down their re-injury rates uh, to two percent. So ninety-eight percent of these uh, these rangers that are getting injured are, uh, are getting back into the uh, the stack because they're they're actually treating them like the professional athletes that they are. If that makes sense. And so every every 06 level command, you know, whether whether you're in APSOC or whether you're in uh, you know, a, a WARCOM or if you're in uh, one of the other Army units, you know, like uh, Special Forces, you know, they've got these human performance centers and they've got these uh, the, these people that will help treat you know the entire guy or gal as it is today. Um, so comes also got the uh, you know their, their, their warrior care program to where if, if somebody if somebody can't stay in, you know, they've got to be mustered out. You know, they've, they've, uh, they're going to get a, a medical retirement, a retirement out of the deal. Then, uh, then they go in and help them uh, find their why and actually get a job. And, uh, and that's one of the things that, uh, that Dave is working on uh, with his Warrior Ethos program. And one of the things that the Global Soft Foundation is also trying to work uh, when we started losing, um, you know, our, our suicide rates, we, you know, we were especially selected, right, the soft guys. So, uh, so you would think that uh, our suicide rates would be a little bit uh, lower than the average. Not so. And uh, you'd think that our guys would be a little bit more in tune with, you know, how to transition out of the military. Not so. You know, our, uh, our, our numbers are running about even with the rest of the force. So, uh, so, and then guys that we know were started killing themselves. And, uh, so as I started looking real hard at the suicides, 
you know, I found out that uh, that everybody wears this mask. You know, they've all got this facade. So you talk to them, and everything's great because you're taught to not be the weak link, right? So and that, that that goes into the civilian life as well. So they won't tell anybody that, uh, especially within the chain of command, that they're uh, that they're hurting, that they're that they're you know that they're broken, that they're, that they're the weak link. Now they may tell a buddy, um, but if that buddy asks them first, so but they they're not going to volunteer it. And uh, so I found out that uh, it boiled down to about five things, and it was faith, family, fitness, friends, and finances. So you know, I, I called them the pillars of resilience. You know, whether so that, whether that's the big F, the, 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 the you know the, the five Fs or the top five. Uh, but but if uh, if a man or a woman, an operator loses faith, you can lose either faith in something larger than. I mean, the first time you see a dead kid, you doubt the existence of God. You know, he either could have done something and didn't, or he can't do something. So, what good is he? And just when you doubt that 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 existence of something bigger than yourself, on a religious, then then you've lost faith. Now, you can also lose your secular faith in, in a nation that just walked out of Afghanistan that uh, that didn't respect the 20 years that you just put into defending that place. Every institution is corrupt. I mean, you, those things run through your head. So. Uh, if you lose uh, either religious or secular faith, you know, a faithless man has or woman has nothing bigger than themselves to rely on. So they've all got a, a level of PTSD. I mean, anybody that goes through this trauma, um, and they, they have, um, they've probably got low testosterone uh, from the, uh, the allostatic load. You know, you're, the allostatic load, you know, living under stress. Um, high levels of cortisol. The cortisol eats the testosterone. So now the testosterone is what heals you. It normally happens when you sleep, but if your sleep cycle is all messed up and you're not sleeping, whether it be from nightmares or just, you know, your, your, your circadian rhythm is off, then you have low testosterone and you're not sleeping, so you're not healing. So, uh, so, and if you've got these issues, then, then generally you're an asshole. So it's not going to be very long before your family starts to break down. So a faithless man who now has no family and his health is failing, if you lose three of those five Fs, you're going to kill yourself. And uh, they can also be lifelines. I know in uh, in, in Dave's case, the uh, his wife was that lifeline. You know, he had a strong family. And uh, so it's those things that can help pull out. So I, I think that's what we're going to try to do. Uh, we being the Global Soft Foundation with the Soft for Life program is, is look at uh, the different associations that are out there that are doing these things you know, like Dave's, find, you know, helping uh, as we can to, to, to get people not to recreate, but we, I want to send guys to Dave. I want to push people to uh, these different organizations that are, that are helping, you know, the mind, the body, the spirit, you know, that are working on family, fitness, faith, friends, and finances. They can be lifelines to these guys and gals by, say, uh, a trigger for their suicide. Does that make sense? Rick, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, I, I'm going to start referring to you as Dr. Rick Lamb because I like you so much that once we get this institute stood up, we'll be offering uh, honorary doctorates to lots of folks. But you, in my <laughs> mind, are the first one. But let me, let me just say this. Remember, together, to be able to publicize what everyone is doing we're a partner to the Global Soft Foundation. We're a partner to what what Dave is doing, uh, what Steve is doing. Now that you've learned about us, uh, use us for a resource. Because if you've got stuff that we need to cover on a program, you can either join us, 
or you could send us ideas that we'll treat in, in the various programs that we do. Uh, these are the first two that we've done that are really heavily concentrated on, on veterans and, and medical type subjects, but we'll move ahead. How about we drop back to Dave at this point and tell us a little about what lays ahead so we can anticipate what our next program will look like. Where do you go? What do you do? About how long do you think it takes as far as the time in your life? And then we'll return to the others for some comments and we'll wrap it up. Dave, take it away. Yeah, thanks, Ranger Doug. Yeah, so, yeah, with, with regards to my story and, and, and such that it is that, that maybe somebody else can relate or, or maybe it might, you know, help somebody else out who's, who's going through similar circumstances or something like that. Um, from my point of view, when I, when I went inpatient, I was, I was an inpatient for about four months. And uh, being at Walter Reed, I, I, I've this is something that I, I came to realize years later after I left Walter Reed. But I came to realize, and this is going to sound strange, how much of a privilege it was to have been there. And, and I and I say that very deliberately because uh, it's something that we kind of hit on a little bit in our in our last conversation. But that is, it's really, really hard to have a bad day or to feel sorry for yourself when you see somebody else who's got it a lot worse than you do, and they're still able to smile and joke and 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 do whatever. Everybody has their up days and their down days. The, the, the hard part is to not let the down days define you. And, you know, being at Walter Reed, you, you see so many 18, 22, you know, 23-year-old they're kids, really. They're, they're they're grown men and women, but essentially a lot of them are kids, and they're walking around missing arms and they're missing legs and you know all kinds of everything in between. They've got severe traumatic brain injuries and so on. And and really, I mean, it, it sounds it sounds sort of weird to say, but you really do see the strength of the human spirit. And and also I'll say I'll add to that, you see the strength of America. Because one of the things that I personally um really liked and really enjoyed and looked forward to when I was an inpatient was at the old Walter Reed. Um they used to let civic groups, um, athletic teams, Cub Scout troops, Girl Scout troops, youth, you know, sports teams, et cetera. Just come in and come to Walter Reed and visit the you know the soldiers and the Marines and the service members that were there and just tell them thank you and you know give them a card or take a picture with them. Uh, there was one gentleman who used to come in. He was actually a, uh, a above the knee amputee on his leg. He was a Korean War veteran and so he was an older gentleman and he and his wife used to come in and they didn't do anything you know in particular except to just come in and just kind of talk with everybody. They got to know, you know, a lot of the people there, a lot of the patients there at Walter Reed by first name. Everybody knew them by first name. Um, his wife would always bring in homemade cookies and pass them out to people. And, I mean, then you'd have, you know, church groups coming in and, and just all these things. And it was it was the fabric of America just coming in to say, you know what, thank you. We appreciate what you're doing and you're important to us and it matters. And, and that... You know, you, you may not see that in a medical, you know, book somewhere or in a training manual or anything like that, but those kinds of things are good for the soul. 
And and that is just as important to the healing process as anything that the doctors and the nurses and the physical therapists and the occupational therapists do. So um, being an outpatient or excuse me, being an inpatient for about four months and being an outpatient for about another two years, um, I got to see a lot of people at their best and at their worst. And and I really count that class of being at Walter Reed as a privilege because it really gave me a unique perspective on a, on a lot of different things, and I don't take it for granted. So I, I, I think, you know, as we go forward in this conversation, I think there's more that we can look at and uh, we, we can talk about with regards to that. And then also, you know, as 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 these service members that are that are severely injured and wounded, but also everyday service members that are just wrapping up careers or, or have made the decision that they're going to move on to something else, that whole transition process, uh, you know, it's not the same for everybody. And contrary to popular belief, it's not a it's not a, a, a an overly simple process. There's a lot of unknowns, and there's a lot of things you got to figure out. And if I was any indication of anybody else at Walter Reed uh, or, you know, at any of the other medical hospitals that were going through the same thing of transitioning out of the military, trying to figure out your what's next is the hardest thing in the world. For me, I was doing exactly what I wanted to be doing with my life. I, 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 that was it. I wanted to be an SF guy. Um, I've had lots of fine examples to include uh, Rick as to what a Special Forces NCO was supposed to be, and, and I was doing the best that I could just to try to, to live up to their example. And so for me, transitioning out of the military was about trying to figure out what was second best. And and that was really difficult. And I'd be lying if I said I haven't figured out now. I've got, I'm a lot further down the road than I was, you know, seven or eight years ago. But... Um, I mean, I was an SF guy. I was an E8 team sergeant. And I went to a dark place for, for about a year after I left the military because I felt like everything I was trying to do, nothing was working out. And, you know, it just it was not good for me. And also, at the same time, being separated from my tribe, you know, being away from all the guys that I knew, from the, from the, the mentality that I knew. It was it was a unique thing. So I think there's there's more that we can talk about and discuss that might be of help to other people going through similar situations. Thanks. That's really great, Dave. Well, so Kevin, can't tell you how much it's meant to have you on here with us because you've had some great comments. You're developing quite the perspective, I'm sure, on where things are headed. And uh, I know you've flown Medivac under fire. Uh, any wrap up comment you'd like to make or comments, please. I would, Ranger Doug, and, and honestly, it'll be real short. Uh, I can't tell you what a big honor it has been for me to listen to the experiences and the stories of these brave Americans that you've had on this podcast. And uh, I can't thank you enough for asking me to be involved. And uh, so I, I very much appreciate that, Ranger Doug. Thank you. Well, Kevin, you know, it's... It's a great deal of good payback because you're somebody I've looked up to for a long time. And uh, if uh, it was ever anything I would do as a bucket list, it would be to get that crew of people we used to run with back in the early 80s. And you see, the nice thing is we're doing it kind of virtually, but we do see each other every once in a while. And I, I just want to thank you 
Uh, Bert Kincaid was very formative in getting people together for this, too. And I speak to Rocky quite a bit. So, uh, you know, the team is still together. But thanks again, Kevin, for joining us, and your contribution has been extremely valuable. Steve, also, uh, your multifaceted perspective on things from being an operator actually in Super 61 and uh, then becoming the uh, uh, assistant command surgeon. As you know, I, I served at that same place at Eastside for, for uh, several years and was the assistant to the uh, operations officer and, and have quite a number of fond memories. So I bet we crossed paths any number of times when we circled Bragg. Thank you. Would you care to leave us with a comment or two? Yeah, I, I, I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to join this esteemed group, a great bunch of guys, uh, several of you uh, with whom I've served on the battlefield and, uh, and in other uh, organizations. Um, I just want to capitalize for just a second on Dave's use of the word privilege, and I think he's uh, spot on. Um, you know, uh, when you when you look at what happens on the battlefield medically, what happens beyond the battlefield medically uh, to our troops and for our troops, it's uh, it's truly light years ahead of where anywhere any other country uh, in in this world uh, is. Uh, the 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 capabilities we have and the the abilities we have uh, to to project care uh, onto the battlefield and sustain that care all the way back to the home front is really remarkable when you look at it uh, in, in the global sense. Uh, no other country can rival us uh, in that capability. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of hard lessons learned. You know, uh, uh, Doc Donovan's B-52 classes, uh, all the way through lessons captured out of Mogadishu and now 20-plus years in Iraq and Afghanistan. There are tons of lessons learned there that, that we can't afford to lose uh, such that we might suffer those same problems again. But more than just privilege, uh, one of the for in the global sense, uh, I, I think there has to be some recognition of privilege we enjoy as, as special operations guys. You know, I spent nearly 37 years in uniform, but only two of those years in the conventional army with the 82nd Airborne Division. Uh, as a brand new PA right out of school, my first assignment was with the 82nd. And I was floored at how little, uh, uh, conventional army medics knew, uh, compared to, uh, what soft medics knew and, and could accomplish on the battlefield. Uh, so, I think it, it remains um, uh, – th there are challenges out there that remain in ensuring the entire force shares the knowledge uh, of lessons learned and that we as, as soldiers and healthcare providers share with our brethren wherever they might be in the service the lessons learned, uh, the hard-fought lessons learned uh, from the battlefield so that uh, all soldiers – all sailors, all airmen, all Marines can can appreciate that privilege of the experience and the knowledge we we collectively as a military enjoy. Thanks for the opportunity to uh, participate today, and I look forward to, uh, to further conversations with you all. Steve, you're, you're part of the team, and, and thank you so much uh, for what you've, you've said, uh, your experience. And each of the members tonight, your experience is like pieces of a pie. They all fit together. 
to give us a very complete program, uh, not the least of which is the person we're discussing, who gives us a wonderful perspective as a leader himself. Uh, can't thank you enough, Dave, for making uh, your experience uh, known to us and then expounding on it to let us develop some perspective ourselves. And as, as Steve has just done, you know, SOF often is special operation forces, often are the spearhead for things that develop in the rest of the military and security community. And we've got to try to do that. And I'll, I'll finish with some remarks in a moment, but I'd like to give the floor to Dr. Richard Lamb to just enlighten us a bit with his perspective on things tonight, and then I'll wrap up. Rick, over to you. Hey, Richard, Richard Doug. I, uh, tonight was cathartic, I think probably for a lot of us. I know for me in particular, it was, it was awesome to, to link up with guys from my youth, you know, the guys that you know, I shared the racing spoon with, you know, the, the spoon that you have in your pocket, and if they pull out a meal, you got your spoon uh, take partaking in their meal. But uh, I, again, I, I love every one of you guys, and it was it was awesome to uh, to, to reconnect. Um, and again, I, I would just leave uh, I would just leave on the word tribe. You know, Sebastian Younger uh, wrote a book called Tribe, and uh, he talked about uh, Outpost Restrepo, and uh, yeah, where the, the enemy could get a uh, get a beat on you anywhere in that camp. And uh, he talked about how guys would, would crawl out into the beaten zone under heavy fire to grab a guy that they didn't even like. And uh, so that, that tribe that, uh, that Dave talked about that, 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 you, that you miss um, is, is something that there, there's something there. And that we've got to figure that out. And I think these podcasts are a part of it. But, uh, but just reaching out to the tribe and getting the tribe together, uh, like I say, tonight was cathartic for me. It was awesome to link up with you guys. And, and thanks, Ranger Dave, for uh, giving me the opportunity. The Ranger Doug, yeah, actually, as it were. I'm honored by the fact you called me Ranger Dave because I know who you're thinking about. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. yeah, my first company commander. <laughs> he's, he's, he's either AWOL or TDY, depending on how you look at it. But we love him. And he's been a big part of my life, let me tell you. Um, I want to give it to Dave to uh, wrap up for us tonight and set the stage for our next program. So, Dave, over to you. Well, thanks, and uh, you know, thanks for the honor of wrapping this up. You know, again, uh, Rick, obviously a mentor of mine. Uh, Steve, thank you. Kevin, thank you very much, both for 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 being on here and sharing your time with 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 me, allowing me to be a part of it. Um. Like I said, I, I I don't see myself as anything special. I, if, if if anything, it's you know the only reason I'm here is maybe I can bring a voice to to somebody else who's out there, you know, who's going through similar stuff or has gone through similar stuff or is still going through it, still struggling with whatever that may be. Um, one of the things that I think we've come a long way on uh, with regards to the military is 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 being a bit more understanding. Uh, when, when our when our soldiers are dealing with some of the things that that, that they brought home with them from Afghanistan or Iraq or or Mogadishu or wherever Syria anywhere and and that's some of the post traumatic stress effects. Um, you know, it used to be a, a pretty big stigma in the military to to even talk about those kinds of things bothering you, and now. Uh, We've realized that if we're proactive about it, instead of trying to sweep it under a carpet, um, not only will we will we 
perhaps save somebody's life, not only will we perhaps help somebody, but it's good for us because they can they can continue to serve. And and that was something that I really didn't have much of a choice in, which in hindsight was good. When I was at Walter Reed, was it was just expected that I was going to go through some counseling and some therapy and kind of unload some of that stuff. And I remember one of the first things I told my counselor, I said, you know what, I, I didn't believe in it. I wasn't a fan of it. Uh, I'd been completely programmed. And, and the first session I went in, I said, okay, you want to hear it? I'll drop everything on you. And uh, it was it was good for me to unload that. And but one of the things that I told him, I, I, I said for me, and I said I think it's this way for a lot of folks that have been in combat. I don't have I don't have any regrets over anything that I did uh, during my time in the military or in Afghanistan. The things that I carry with me are the things that I failed to do. And and I think that that is. I don't, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I think that's a lot of folks that have post-traumatic stress and are dealing with those demons from, from their deployments past. And hopefully shows like this can, can, can show some of those people that, A, you're not alone, even though you can feel that way, and, B, there are other people that have walked the same ground that you have, and, and let's, let's get the tribe together, as Rick was saying, and let's, let's use some shared experience. And let's, you know, try to stop, you know, rehashing the same things over again. Let's carry the football a little bit further down the field and learn from each other's experiences. So I want to thanks, thank you again, Ranger Doug, for allowing me to be a part of this. It's I'm, I'm honored and I'm humbled, and I look forward to uh, to the next conversation. Thank you. Well, I'd, I'd like to wrap up then and uh, to tell you that I've had a good amount of experience. I've considered myself to be sort of the forest gump of some aspect of things that we do. But uh, it's humbling to listen to you and to these other professionals talk about what they're doing. One thing that you've said, and I think the audience understands, that anyone who's heard this can now go out to a VA hospital and sit with a young wounded person, male, female, any service, Coast Guard, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, Army, and even the other expeditionary services, CIA, and so forth, and understand that there's something in that person that needs to be unlocked so that they can go on to a productive life. And people like us have to work to, to fill those deficits because if we don't, we're going to have a catastrophic decline in the quality of our society, and we're very susceptible to many things that are being done by our enemies and our adversaries. And I've dedicated everything I'm doing to that, which is to educate the young and train them on ways to cope with things that seem insurmountable. But to remember, as we go through in the soft business, they stress you to the point where you almost have to evoke Nietzsche, that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And each time you gain another ring in your tree or whatever it is you use, you get a bit stronger and capable of moving forward into things that don't make any sense, but if you're tough enough, even combat isn't as bad as ranger school. And that was the lesson taught to me in 1975 and 76, and it still persists to this day. There is very little anyone can do that will disturb me because I've basically experienced enough, and I've seen a lot more, to where it's hard to drive me off center. But the fact is, a lot of our, not only privates, but our very senior people, 
that are coming up these days as I watch them haven't got that ability to center themselves. So this is something I'd suggest to the people that are our guests tonight, but also our audience, consider devoting themselves to. How to figure out how to help somebody get themselves centered in their life and move ahead. And where it's, you've got to meet them when they first come out of that coma and talk about where they're headed and how you're going to help them because you represent uh, a 501c3 or you're just there as a music player or whatever it is. Uh, we have got to care for each other. We've got to reach out to those we few, we happy few, brothers and sisters. Whoever will spend blood or sweat with me will be my family. That's what I believe, and that's what I'm pushing for. Any further comments from anybody? Okay, well, we'll call that a wrap. Thank you all, gentlemen, for joining us. Understand we've had ladies on the program before, and we're going to have them again. But tonight, this was focused on our friend, Dave Smith. Dave, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And we look forward to the next episode in this saga. Thanks, gentlemen. We look forward to General Dave joining us again. And this is Ranger Doug with our 10th podcast. Thank you for joining us, ladies and gentlemen. Ranger Doug out. Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Veterans Broadcast Network, bringing you shows like Veterans Radio Hour, Wounded But Not Broken, and Roll Call. Listen each week as General Grange and his guests address issues faced by veterans throughout their lives.